0: You're listening to Legally Bliss Conversations. This podcast reclaims and rewrites the stories female attorneys have been told about how we should practice law, grow our businesses, treat our clients, treat ourselves, and craft our identities as female attorneys. We'll hear inspiring stories from current and former female attorneys, the ones who question the stories they've been told, the ones who aren't afraid to live boldly and step into their own power. We'll learn from women who define success on their terms. Through lighthearted and curious conversation, we'll impact the challenges these inspiring female attorneys have already navigated. So join me on this journey. You'll be empowered and ready to rewrite a completely new story about what is possible for you. I'd like to welcome everyone to Legally Bliss Conversations. I would love to give a warm welcome to N.C. Sungaila. N.C. is a shareholder and chair of the appellate practice group at Buckalter. She is also the creator and host of the Porsche Project podcast, which profiles leading women judges and lawyers and shares their career journeys to educate and inspire the next generation. She is a highly regarded appellate attorney who has briefed and argued appeals raising cutting edge and fundamental business issues for over two decades. Her work has helped shape undeveloped areas of the law in constitutional law, employment, franchisor liability, product liability, class actions, probate, immigration, Holocaust art recovery, and human rights. Chambers USA reports that clients describe MC as a phenomenal writer, an excellent strategist and a gifted appellate lawyer who consistently delivers bottom line results. She has been recognized for over a decade by The Daily Journal as one of California's 100 leading women lawyers. She is a recipient of two back-to-back California Lawyer of the Year Awards, including one in 2015 from California Lawyer Magazine, Daily Journal Corporation, for the precedent-setting franchiser vicarious liability case, she argued before the California Supreme Court in the case of Patterson versus Domino's Pizza. In addition to her appellate practice, Ms. Sangaila is also frequently recognized for her sustained commitment to community service and pro bono work. In 2017, she was awarded the Ellis Island Medal of Honor, whose recipients include seven U.S. presidents. Nobel Prize winners, athletes, and others whose work has made a lasting impact on humanity for her combined professional achievement and humanitarian and pro bono work. Wow, MC, what what a bio. I am just so impressed with your history and everything that you've done. So I, I, we were talking before we hopped on here, I really want MC to have the opportunity to tell her story because she's also provided a platform for female attorneys and judges to tell their stories on the Porsche project podcast. So let's talk about you let's talk about MC let's let's go back just a couple of years when did you decide to go to law school and what was the impetus for that.
1: Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Lizzie. I really appreciate your podcast and the encouragement and uh, that you're providing to, to other lawyers and women lawyers in particular. So I, I applaud your mission and, and your podcast as well. So I'm glad to be able to contribute. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I, um, a really, very early in my life, I had the idea briefly that I would be a writer, and that perhaps I would be a poet. That's what I really loved writing this poetry. So when I was quite young, and very soon after having that idea, I had a very um, strong image of me starving in a garret. I'm not sure what exactly how I came up with that. I know who starving in a garret. I don't know if I'd seen La Boem or something like that, but it wasn't good. So I thought, okay, maybe a little more practical, something that, you know, you you could get a roof over your head with in a more popular way. So I uh, kind of put to thinking about that. And as adults are apt to do, they ask you, you know, what would you like to do, you know, when you grow up? And, and I would tell them for years that I, was cons- I hadn't yet considered it. But when I figured it out, I would let them know. And they were like, well, we're just making conversation, kid, you know, <laughs> no need to be too serious. <laughs> But somehow I landed on being a lawyer pretty soon after that. I didn't know any lawyers. There were no lawyers in my family. As it turns out, pretty far back, um, my my great-grandfather was a judge um, in Europe. So there was some history, but I didn't know about that um, at that point in time. So somehow I I decided lawyer. And as it turns out, the kind of lawyer I ended up being was a very good mix. Um, I mean, I'm a writing lawyer. You know, I persuade judges, not juries. And a lot of our work is done storytelling, legal storytelling in briefs. So it's a way to have a practical impact um, with your writing and to really craft that writing really well. So uh, so it's actually a perfect kind of... of mix for me being that kind of lawyer as opposed to other kinds of lawyers so i think that's one of the good things about the laws there are so many different ways you can practice so many different ways you can use the training and it's part of what i focus in the commercial project is to let people know know how many other options there are and the number of ways that women are leading in the law and outside the law legal training so anyway yeah so that's how that's how i came upon that although i didn't know that there were appellate lawyers until much later in my career but in the end backwards as it always does it makes total sense it does
0: you can connect the dots the dots looking backwards right it's hard going forward so how was your law school experience
1: oh gosh you know i came from undergrad at stanford which was an amazing environment very collaborative you know just um, amazing student colleagues and then law school you know a little bit fierce a little well, bit fiercer. So, um, so, you know, fiercer colleagues. And, and also the thing I thought I was so good at, which was writing, was the thing that really had to get torn down and, and restructured for legal writing. So the first year was kind of miserable, quite honestly, because I'm like, yes. "Hey, this is the one thing I know how to do. I don't know the law, I don't know this stuff, but boy, can I write!
0: I got this <laughs> part."
1: <laughs> yeah, and they're like, "No, no, you can't. No, you have to destroy and rebuild." So that, that was a little tough, but um, but since then, I've I've learned to combine, you know, the other kind of uh, creative writing, fiction and nonfiction writing with my legal writing. So it's all come together, but at first it was a little bit tough.
0: So are you doing much additional creative writing uh, fiction in addition to practicing right now?
1: I am not. I, I will say that um, I had an early midlife crisis where I was kind of in my forties or so when I was thinking, gosh, should I have been a poet? Like, should I have done that instead? You know, let me go back and see. And so I took a lot of creative writing courses um, short story writing, nonfiction, creative nonfiction, all kinds of writing classes um, through UCLA and Stanford for, I would say, a couple of years. And I gained a lot of skills from that. And I certainly did do some of that writing, um, short stories and whatnot. But what I discovered, gratefully, was that I made the correct choice to begin with. That I really liked uh, writing as a lawyer. I really liked telling stories to judges. I, I really preferred that because it has a more immediate impact on the world. When you're writing stories, you, you hope that you've impacted someone, but you don't know. But here, you know, you have a very direct real world impact. And then um, uh Two other things was that I. I thought I was good, but to become better, and I would have to spend more time alone, be a little more introspective, and not, as a result, not be the kind of person that I wanted to be. Like I'd be a little crankier you know, be a little less <laughs> yeah. social. It, it it just it was like, wow, you could do that, but personality wise, you'd have to be a different person after that. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't really like, I was like, no, no, I don't, I don't like what that means I have to do. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of, I, I went, oh, Epiphany, you were doing the right thing. You were doing uh, the right thing all along. Yeah. Yeah. But I still have a publishing company and I still, uh, I still do publish books, but they are more gift books, quote books, um, a, a whole series of books and a self-guided journal from, um, my mom's encouraging notes to me during my, um, during my career. So I still dabble in that, but we're not talking about, you know, serious, uh, fiction.
0: Okay. Okay. So let's talk about that. Well, no, let's go back just a little bit and I do want to get to the publishing cause it sounds, this is interesting. So many of the women I talked to, they, they're so multifaceted and you're one of them, but let's go back to like right after you graduated from law school, what, what were you thinking? Like, were you ready to take on the world? Were you apprehensive? What was that experience like after graduating and going straight into your first uh position?
1: Yeah, so I had a clerkship, a federal clerkship, um, after graduation. Um, so so I was going to the clerkship, uh, which was itself an amazing training ground. I mean, I worked around the clock for a year, um, but. I learned how to be a lawyer and how to practice from the judge that I worked for, Judge Alice Marie Scottler, who ended up being the chief judge of the Central District of California later on. So I learned a lot from her, as well as Judge Dorothy Nelson, who had extern four on the Ninth Circuit, and then later for Judge Fernandez, who was on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, where I did a full workship with him too. So I was excited to go into a clerkship. I knew that I was going to take a job at the law firm after that. So that was sort of set, Um, but I was kind of taking one thing at a time. You know, I'll go to the clerkship, get the work hard and get the most I can out of that experience and then go into the law firm. So, So that's kind of what happened. And then actually during the first clerkship was when I decided I'd really like to have a full year clerkship at the Ninth Circuit. Which was a little bit late to think that, (laughs) because most people do back-to-back clerkships, and I had to explain my firm why I'd be there for a year and then leave them again. Um, It's kind of a little bit uncomfortable, but it was a clerkship, so they're they're happy, you know, to have that that experience. But it was something that really no one had done at that point. Everybody does it now, but no, almost no judge would take someone from my experience, and certainly it wasn't something that people law firms expected to have this year of practice between two clerkships. Now it's routine. People graduate law school, they'll work for three or four years and then they'll start a workshop. Um th- That just didn't happen in the early 1990s. So to that degree, because I considered it late, I became an accidental pioneer <laughs> in doing that and found a judge who was pioneering in that way too. Cause he's like, you know, it's great. I get a year of clerkship training and a year of practice training you're going to hit the ground running a lot faster than people coming straight out law school, which is true.
0: Yeah, that sounds like it was an, an amazing experience. So you, you're obviously kind of a trailblazer in, in several, several different areas. So when did you ultimately leave the clerkship and then go work for a, a law firm?
1: Yeah, so I so I worked for the same firm between the two clerkships, and then I came back to that firm after the second clerkship. All right, Okay. Um, and I was a litigator, you know. I mean, that's what I thought I was gonna do, you know, be a sort of general litigator. I did some white-collar criminal defense, I did some complex business litigation, really just all the stuff that you do as a as a newer lawyer. And then um as a fourth year lawyer, uh, I had the opportunity to work on a significant trial, white-collar trial. And so going to trial and doing significant work on it, like arguing the major emotions, doing the jury instructions, all of that was pretty amazing um, in a big part. It's a rare opportunity. So I was very excited to have it. But on the other hand, I noticed that I was kind of a a horse of a different color, a bird of a different feather, whatever you want to call it, than everybody else who was on this trial team. They really you know, felt I mean, if you're going to be working 300 hours a month, which is what happens when you're in trial, there better be some payoff for those 300 hours, whatever it is. And to me, I, you know, I like talking to the judge, and I liked arguing things, but the thing that made the trial lawyers very excited and to this day continues to make trial lawyers very excited is, is cross examination. Like that's the zenith of most yeah. trial <laughs> And I felt badly for people who were being cross examined. Like as another human, I felt badly for them. And I didn't enjoy cross examination. Whether I was doing it or somebody else was, I just was kind of like cringing at this poor person who's just eviscerated on the stand. And I thought, that is, that is a fundamental difference between you and the people who enjoy this. Like this is, you can't fix this because you're not that kind of person, not like, am I good at it or do I have the skills? So when I realized like, wow, you, one is not like the other, you do not fit in this realm. I had this moment of like, well, I am really glad I had this experience, because if I waited like eight or nine years, then I would have found out I'd be in a lot more trouble. at <laughs> at least it's sooner, but I was still adrift. I was like, "Holy cow, this is what I thought I was going to be doing, and you know, I feel badly for people. So this clearly cannot be what I was supposed to be doing. So the next um, the next thing was like, what am I going to do? I mean, clearly not this uh so is there anything that lets you just talk to the judge and like argue motions and jury instructions as it turns out yes that's what appellate lawyers do in the trial court so i didn't know that at the time but i was thinking yeah just that part but most people don't argue really you just that part they want you to do the trial so um yeah so i was really really blessed that like a few months later i had an amazing opportunity to write a brief pro bono in the u.s supreme court And my first Apollo break that I've ever written by myself, really, and, you know, was, lead on strategy and all of that. And I had one week to write this break. Mm. And um, so I locked myself in a room and I worked those 300 hours and, you know, I didn't mind. So I was like, okay, this is very different from the feel I had in the trial court. I'm like, I'm enjoying this. No (laughs) (laughs) cross-examining. This is good. I'm really liking this. And I felt like I had an instinct for how to present things, even though I'd never done this before, which I never really felt when I was, you know, doing the trial work, except in the mentions. So um, so yeah, so that so I was really blessed that I had that experience because then I was able to find what it is. I'm like, oh, I like this appellate stuff a lot. And it was a really interesting case involving a judge in Tennessee who had been convicted of raping and sexually assaulting. Women, court employees, litigants in his courtroom, threatening that if they didn't receive his wishes, something would go against them. It was a pretty juicy case, and you felt like you're definitely on the side of right and good, you know, trying to make sure that this gentleman gets back in jail. So, um so it was it was a very interesting case all around. And then because the government was the government's case, they couldn't talk to the press, but the press was very interested in it. I mean, this was a case that was on CNN, 60 Minutes. There was a book written about it. There was a movie option. I mean, this was like a big deal at this time in the 1990s. So so the press was interested. So I ended up being the accidental press spokesperson for the case too, for the the side of the victims. So, um, So I had a crash course in how to deal with the press. I mean, it was just a really, really interesting opportunity. And from that was where I decided, okay, uh, this is what I want to do. I want to do pilot work, and you know I need to go somewhere else to do that. And I um, need to go somewhere where people I can get really good training and people know what they're doing, and I can
0: learn from them. So how far out of law school were you at that point?
1: Um, uh, maybe like five years out.
0: So I think that's a really good example of you know, just because you've been practicing in a certain area, you know, for four or five years out, doesn't, you're not pigeonholed. Like you can still consider other practice areas. So you ultimately left that firm, right? went to another place so you can work more appellate type work.
1: Yeah, I did. I went to um, Horvitz and Levy, which is appellate.
0: Okay. So how was that experience?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I had a lot of cases with Ellis Horvitz who was Really, the founding lawyer of appellate practices specialty in California, I had a lot of complex cases right away that I I got to work on. For whatever reason, people thought I would have the chops to work on those. Usually, you get smaller appeals, but I got really big, long trials to work on, and um, and it was uh, it was great. I mean, I learned I learned my craft uh, there.
0: And you had mentors in that uh, position to to kind of help help you grow as an appellate um, attorney.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely the the firm is really focused on training, so um, so uh, definitely got good training. And and I also think it's in, in what you observe; it's not always like yeah. what people say. It's because like, people don't know, are always conscious about their strategy or the art of what they're doing um, because. It, they just do it automatically. So I think the opportunity to see people in that process and what they're doing, even if they don't tell you about what they're doing, is, is very valuable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious about your um the work that you did with the Holocaust art recovery. Yeah,
1: sure. So uh yeah, I have this um well first. Because uh, pro bono work is integral to how I became an appellate lawyer and always felt that it's integral to my practice. So I, I owe a pro bono case for me discovering appellate work. And I also come from a background where we, we serve, we give back in some way. And so, um, so it just kind of fits both of those molds. So i worked on a number of pro bono cases throughout my career. Uh, you know, two or three years since, um, since the linear case, since the first case in 1986. So that was a lot <laughs> over, um, that period of time. So, uh, it started out, the Holocaust art started out as a pro bono, um, situation. Um, one of, um, I was asked to serve as a, a court judge for uh, a gentleman was having his first U.S. Supreme Court argument in a Holocaust art recovery case, which turned out to be quite famous, Maria Altman's case, Seeking the Klimts Back from Austria, which ended up becoming a movie starring Helen Warren and and, and Ryan Reynolds uh, called Woman in Gold. But at the time, it was still an important case and that the court had agreed to hear it at all. And so I started out my journey in Holocaust art cases by serving as a court judge um, for, for Randy Schoenberg. And then he had a series of cases after that. He won that case, which is remarkable. And then um, and then got all the points back for Maria um, through arbitration in Austria after the U.S. Supreme Court decision. So very interesting, um, rare success story in this setting. Uh So anyway, so as a result of that, he got a lot of similar cases. And then he would ask me to file amicus graves or become involved some way in those as well so i just got more and more involved in those cases and then the more as often happens the more cases you do in a particular area the more people call you to do other cases so most recently i filed a petition um like two terms ago now um for picasso painting held at the met so um yeah so every few years i'm usually working on some holocaust art recovery case
0: Let's take a quick pause for a message from my sponsor, Prominent Practice. Are you thinking about a career transition from big law or partnership to a solo practice, selling your practice, or maybe you're launching a project unrelated to law? Whatever the reason for your transition, you'll need support along the way. Enter Prominent Practice, an executive consulting and marketing firm specializing in branding, positioning and reputation management for transitioning attorneys. Founded by a female entrepreneur who spent a decade building smart digital platforms for thought leaders before pivoting to focus on high-end service providers who were preparing for successions, mergers and acquisition events in their businesses. If you're thinking about making a big business move, don't risk losing the ability to leverage the reputation you've spent your career building. Let Prominent Practice be your guide. Visit prominentpractice.com slash blist for an exclusive introduction. So I'm I'm curious, you are now doing the Porsche project. What was the inspiration for the Porsche Project? And of course, I do want to ask about your publishing company. Um, but let's start with the, the Porsche Project.
1: Yeah, so um, so the Porsche Project actually started from probably a few years ago when uh, I originally kind of canvassed how many women appellate judges there were around the country. I was just kind of curious. And I noticed that there were not as many as you would hope, state and federal level maybe 150. You know, that's not a lot, um, considering how many points we're talking about. So I thought, okay, well, that's not a lot. I'd like to see more uh, there. You know, What can I do to kind of honor these people and encourage other people to think about applying? So I started working in a book format, interviewing different judges, um, but I discovered along the way that what they really enjoyed doing, they didn't really want to write, you know, in response to my questions. They just enjoyed talking. Now, if you're going to end up in a book, that means a lot more work for the book, almost an impossible amount of work uh, because they talk to you, then you have to work it out. And it's about six or seven back and forth before you get there a very short, you know, succinct uh, story. And then along the way you, you lose a lot of this conversational part where you really get to learn who these people are, which we often don't get the opportunity to do. So I thought, okay, this is going to be a longer project, kind of set it aside. And then with the pandemic, judges got familiar with Zoom. Uh, podcasting became much more popular. Even legal podcasting were slow to adopt, but you know, it sort of started. And so I started wondering in 2020. 2021, early 2021, I wonder whether this would be a big podcast project instead of a book. And so the, I waited to see if somebody else would start and do the project and podcast. Nobody did. So I decided, okay, I guess I'll do it. First is to see if the women judges want to talk to you. If they don't, there's no podcast. So, I'm very lucky to say that I reached out to 20 women judges and, and um, in different levels who I knew or knew of. And they all agreed to do it. Site unseen to the podcast, like, you know, just saying, yeah, we're, we're happy to tell our story. So, I give them a lot of credit without them that we're a podcast. And to most people, want to see, like, well, what does it look like? What am I getting myself into? there wasn't any podcast like this so there's nothing they could look at you know that would show that so um so i give them a lot of credit for doing that and then once i started that i realized hey there's i'm I'm not doing a book so i'm not tied to appellate judges i can do 12 judges i can interview people who are in a number of different settings how they're using their law degree in different ways and really highlight the different ways that women are leading in the profession and outside the profession with the legal training so it's really blossomed um from the appellate and child judges who we continue to have on the podcast but also um legal tech founders who tend to be quite young <laughs> out of law school um those who are legal thriller writers or authors now some people who are ceos of nonprofits and, and not legal nonprofits necessarily but um museums, art museums, things like that. So just kind of opening opening people's eyes to what they can do and the ways in which women are making an impact. So that's kind of in the plan. I thought it was going to be like a 20 episode podcast with a few judges. And now uh we're definitely on track for 100 episodes, 45 episodes have aired since February. And I definitely am I'm definitely going to get the hundred episode milestone, which I'm very interested in reaching. And then um, when we reach that, I, I'm also planning to put together some short documentaries um, from the podcast because there are certainly um, in the individual stories is the story of women's progress in the profession from the 1970s forward from the time when you weren't allowed to interview for a job because you weren't a man on law review to a point now where that that isn't the case. there are still continue to be, challenges, but how much change happened between the 1970s and today, I think is worth uh, recognizing.
0: And that's something, that's the language that you have on your trailer for your podcast, as well as your description, where you talk about the history. And I think that that's, I think that, like, that really resonated with me, because it it really reminded me how fortunate we are to live in, in this time period, where You know, there there are still some. We all still face certain challenges, unique challenges. But at the same time, you know, we have opportunities that our great grandmothers didn't have. So I feel very fortunate. Yeah. Let me ask you, how did you pick the name, the Porsche Project? I'm a trademark lawyer, so I'm always curious about name originations.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, my trademark lawyer said trademarked that right away once I said it. Um, So. Portia, well, two things. First is the character from Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, a woman who had to pretend to be a man, to act as a lawyer, to advocate for her um, fiance's friend, who was in trouble. And on, on top of that is that early in the profession, even in, in my time, we'll say in the 80s or early 90s, when I was starting out, uh, women lawyers were referred to as Portia because there weren't very many of us.
0: Wow.
1: Sense of we kind of have to pretend to be a guy to make it. And feminists would call, I mean, there were a lot of articles about that. Porsche's progress in the profession, the ABA Commission on Women referred to it. That was a very common term until the mid 1990s that women embraced for themselves um, in referring to women lawyers. That's kind of abated. But so that that, um, that name has both the classical sense of Merchant of Venice and and also how it was used uh, for women lawyers.
0: Okay, so I'm really glad that I asked that question. That's something that I feel like culturally I probably <laughs> I missed out on. So I'm really glad that I asked that. So I'm curious how how is your publishing company integrated into kind of what you're doing on a daily basis or with the with the podcast itself? I mean, you've talked about potentially publishing a book at some point. You have your publishing company. You're obviously interested in writing. I'm I'm really curious about how all of this kind of plays together.
1: Yeah, so I enjoy writing of all kinds and you know, cr- creative pursuits. So um, so the, the, the publishing company originally started uh, a few years ago, when honestly, I just had an idea um, kind of similar to, part, to the podcast, in that I choose to do things because I, I feel like they even if it would help like one or two people, it, it feels like it's a positive thing to put out there. And it feels like it's the right time to do it, that somebody will benefit from it. And I have no idea who it is. I may never know, her now, but but the point is to get, get it out. And so that's kind of what I felt about the publishing was I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I had like no company <laughs> when I had the idea and I didn't know what was involved in publishing. Um, but I had this sense looking at the notes that my mom had written me, And all of this stuff from over the years, I just thought, wow, you know, this really made a difference to me. If I hadn't received these in my office or, you know, on a pretty regular basis throughout the week, I don't know how easily it would have been for me to carry on in a profession that's tough, but particularly tough for women, and especially when you're starting out. So so I thought, well, that was valuable to me, like sort of looking back, what made a difference to me, that made a difference to me maybe it'll make a difference to other women and maybe i'll encourage them to stay in like if you're having a rough day just open the book and go yeah that's what i need to keep what I need to read i'm good to go so yeah so so that's that's all that, that was my idea and then i really enjoy creative art books and you know gift books and things like that so it's like it has to be like that kind of format more you know very pretty kind of thing um, and and so, and I was like, I don't know anything about that either. So I just started searching, um, found a great um editing uh, company and production company, and and just did it. So that was the first book, and then that was popular. So I did a second one, and then I listened to the people who enjoyed books who said, Oh, we we wish we could um have ideas like that to give to our kids or grandkids or whatever. So, we end up writing on like notes in their lunch boxes some of the encouraging words from the books, but it's not as pretty as the books look now. But we wish we could do something like that. So, I was like, hmm, okay. So, that's when we came up with the self guided journal. So, it's very pretty and you can kind of follow the prompts and really create your own book for your child or grandchild.
0: So, what is your publication um, company or publishing company called? Yeah, so it's Crystal Cove Press. Okay, awesome. So where where did you get your inspiration, MC?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that, um, I think this is true in general, that there are sometimes ideas are kind of put put out there um, in the universe, you know, in the ether, kind of. And it's the time for someone to accept them and act on them. You know, we have a lot of ideas, but there's a difference between having an idea and like making it a reality. So I feel like there's some things, it's circulating, that idea's out there, and someone will pick up on it and do it. And that's kind of, I think I'm like one of those, very attuned to that, where things are possibly going next kind of thing, both in, in, you know, legal practice and, and my writing there, but also also in this. And I think always like for good, like always for a a positive thing. I, I don't, I don't do it for myself. I don't do it for, you know, other than it has meaning and it can help other people.
0: Yeah. I feel like you are one of those people that you, at some point in your life, you knew what your values were and you made decisions and like on a daily basis to move you towards your goals, ensuring consistently that they always align with your values. So I really, you inspire me for being that way. I I think that's really cool because I, you know, I look back when I was a younger lawyer and I know that I made a lot of decisions that weren't necessarily aligned with what my internal values were, Um, but you seem that you you have a really good hold on that.
1: Most of the time, I
0: hope. (laughs) I think you
1: but, do. <laughs> but, like, I, mean, I think that that's really it. I think that some people, I think there's a lot of pressure to think that you have to be a certain way or there's only one way to be. And, um, and you have to fit into some kind of mold, but, I, but that that's never the best way to go. Like the most authentic and genuine expression of yourself and your particular gifts and your style or whatever. I mean, that's the way to go. Um, and I think that's partly where we are as women in the profession now is like, you, you feel more freedom to be able to to do that. If it means being more feminine, if it means you don't do another, just being differently. You don't feel like you have to wear the suit and the floppy bow and all that stuff, which was true uh, still in the in the 1980s and the early 1990s, I'll say.
0: Yeah, for sure. So let me ask if you could write. Like a little note to yourself, what little piece of advice would you give young m c knowing what you know now?
1: I think a few things came to mind, so I'll just say the things that came to mind. so when is you're stronger than you think? um because I think sometimes when you're like a very empathetic you know vulnerable person, you think that 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 means you're you know you're not strong, not true um, and then. I think the other two things, literally the phrases that came to mind right now, so this is in the moment, live podcasting going on right now, (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think about this before, is be brave and be you.
0: I love that. So what's next for you?
1: Oh, gosh. I don't know.
0: I think um,
1: uh, I didn't know I was going to be doing a podcast, so you never know. Yeah. (laughs) You never know. um, Yeah. I mean... I always, um, in the law practice, I always, I'm um, looking at, the good thing about health laws is we're always moving and wherever the cutting edge is in the law. So I kind of like that I don't know what it's actually going yes, Yeah, that's okay. Hard, you know, it could be a different kind of law, which is what I really love about it. And yeah. we're changing it. We're like right on the cost of change. So I love that. I love not knowing exactly which one, but. Definitely in the California Supreme Court and US Supreme Court and NAG Circuit, you know, once again, and hopefully another international human rights case as well, which I've also enjoyed doing, um, which we, we didn't talk about, but certainly um meaningful and helpful. Um and um, yeah, I think one of the things I'm getting better at now is being open to things like I've always been the kind of person that, you know, you walk down the street and you have like, I'm going to store X, you know, you just sort of walk down the street and have blinders to the rest of the stores that are around. They might be interesting, they might be great, but you're going to store X. So forget those places, you're not even going to look at it. I think what I've gotten a little bit better at from from the podcasting and the books is that sometimes, you know, maybe go look at that other store that wasn't on your list, you know, stop in, see what's there. I think of that in terms of opportunities about where your life can go and, and what you can do. And as you go on, you have a more unique combination of skills, skills that are stacked with each other. And as a result, there are really some opportunities that are just perfectly unique to you and your skill set that you may not have considered. So I think that's it. Being open. I don't want to say, yes, it's definitely going to be this in the future, because that'll stave off you know any other cool opportunity that i am thought
0: of. Well I think that that's really cool that you had that realization because at the end of the day it's I think it's really great advice for for anyone listening right you know don't always have those blinders on go go into like the crazy store every now now and then right like don't you don't always have to go to whole foods like maybe you should just stop by their like weird little mom and pop place and see what's happening there don't take don't take the same route home every day. Like, you know, that's just kind of um, an an analogy, but I think that that really applies to everyone. And I'm really excited to see where you're gonna be going over the next um, few years, especially with international human rights as well. And I'd actually love to talk with you more about that um, at some point, but I do wanna be mindful of our time and I'm gonna be following you closely. Where can other people follow you, MC?
1: Sure. So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So I'm happy to engage with people there. And I regularly post about the podcast episodes there as well. Um, And then the podcast website is PorscheProjectPodcast.com. So, um, yeah, so there. And then also my law firm is webculture.com.
0: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed learning more about you, MC. And I'm excited to see where um, the future goes for you.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for hanging out with us today on Legally Bliss Conversations. If you love this episode and you want to hang out with other inspiring and light gold female attorneys, be sure to join the Legally Bliss community at legallyblissed.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at Susie Hickson. See you next time.